0: Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, an ongoing conversation about public policy, governance, and global issues. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is David Keith, the Gordon McKay Professor of Applied Physics at Harvard's School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, and a professor of public policy here at the Kennedy School. In 2009, he was named one of Time Magazine's Heroes of the Environment. David, welcome to the PolicyCast. Thanks, great to be here. So, we recently learned that 2012 was the hottest year on record here in the continental United States. All sorts of records broken uh, for uh, a a warming planet. Um, We've been hearing warnings about climate change for decades now. Have we finally reached the point where it's too late to do anything about it? Most certainly not.
1: There's a uh, tendency to frame this as some kind of tipping point, and that is essentially been a cons- politically constructed uh, idea that people in the environmental community thought would be really useful to get action. And it, it, it is a very powerful metaphor. So the metaphor is that, uh, to be clear, this is a metaphor, not what I really think, is that you have some tipping point where if you go over it, you tip inexorably into total destruction, game over for the planet, and you don't quite know where you're reaching there, and you're sort of tiptoeing towards it, and then you're going to collapse over. And I think... Um, is a way to frighten people to get action that is seemingly successful, although of course we haven't actually got any action, so you've got to question how successful it was in hindsight. But is a fact about nature; it's almost certainly wrong.
0: Interesting. So. Uh, one thing you've been talking about as a way to uh, uh, tackle climate change is geoengineering. Um, can you tell us a little bit about geoengineering as a as a possibility? Sure, I can. And maybe
1: I'll, I'll try uh, say a little bit more about sort of moderation, a little more framing about climate first. So I've worked on climate change for almost a quarter century now. It's the issue that I've focused on, and I am certainly an advocate of very serious action. But I do think that is it always true in political situations, there's a immense polarization. And the polarization really at this point has almost made a, a vacuum in the middle. So we have a, a significant fraction of the population truly believing that this is kind of a plot by the left wing to impose more government regulation. The science is all wrong. And a significant portion on the left truly believing this is like an existential threat to humanity. And I think neither of those is true. I think it is a very serious environmental problem but one that is kind of slow-moving, one that I, I truly think we should deal with and spent a lot of my career devoted to trying to deal with, but one in which there isn't a single moment of dead bodies where we really have to act now. That's part of the reason it's so hard to get any action.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, a lot of the political will for action has been around things that are uh, more incremental, uh, reducing carbon uh, use, you know, changing to more efficient light bulbs, these kinds of things. Uh, But you've been talking specifically about more uh, uh, big changes uh, through geoengineering. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, and I'm happy to talk about it in a second. But let me also point out that
1: while there's been a lot of political talk, the actual action in restraining emissions has been very weak globally. I mean, there's some notable exceptions, but emissions are still going up pretty quickly. And let me Mm -hmm. say one other crucial scientific fact. There aren't that many facts you need to know, but one absolutely crucial one is that the amount of carbon we put in the atmosphere each year from burning fossil fuels to run our economy, that's emissions. But what the atmosphere sees, if you like, that makes climate change is the concentration, the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere. And that builds up very slowly, like water in a bathtub with a slow, slow flow in. And carbon lasts in the atmosphere for sort of 100 to 1,000-year timescales. This is crucial to the public policy in both directions. And I'll get to geoengineering in a second. Mm -hmm. But what it means is that if you cut emissions right now, you don't actually get rid of the problem right now. What it also means is this problem builds up slowly over time. So we really are, you know, our cheap energy use today is transmitting risk to our great-grandkids, but it it makes it a very slow-moving problem, very different from most other problems we face. So geoengineering is the idea that you can do something different, solar geoengineering, the idea that you can put reflective particles deliberately in the upper atmosphere, basically polluting the upper atmosphere, is a way to reflect away some sunlight, which partly offsets the climate risk from CO2 in the atmosphere, partly but not completely. But a key difference is it does do it quickly, for better or for worse. So if you actually did do this, and it's pretty clear technically you could do it, you, you, you can, say, stop the warming, really no doubt, or even do cooling if that's what you wanted to do, um, uh, but in a way that's sort of inherently imperfect, but it's fast. Uh, uh, I've come to say a lot that it has three key characteristics in policy terms, fast, cheap, and imperfect.
0: So uh, that actually fits with your uh, your current professorships here. You're, you're both a professor at the School of Engineering and the, here at the School of Public Policy. Or, uh, can you talk about kind of the balance there? Is this more of an engineering problem or more of a public policy problem?
1: Uh, um, I would say geoengineering all the really hard problems are public policy problems. Uh, There are lots of fun technical problems and I enjoy working on them and I have a a good deal of of, uh, pleasure doing that and I think made some progress. But but this is an enormous government's problem. I think not, this will sound a a, a little uh, over the top, but I actually think it's realistic. In some ways it's akin to the problem of of even managing nuclear weapons. This is so cheap to do, and gives individual, the smallest nation state in principle. I mean, I think in practice not, power to alter the whole global climate at costs that are really effectively zero, like 0.001 percent of global GDP. That you have a very hard control problem. It it gives you the kind of the the, the sort of the, the leverage that you have in terms of the amount of environmental impact or power. To be blunt about it for a given amount of kind of money and effort is akin to the ratio, literally, the actual 10 to the seven or so ratio uh, between conventional weapons and nuclear weapons. And I think that if we really want to successfully govern the planet over you know century long timescales and manage this technology, which I think exists whether we like it or not, and so we have to manage it, uh, it will require rethinking of how we manage governance. I don't mean that we will magically have a day with global governance tomorrow, but it requires a kind of global governance that may be more like the kind of global governance we need for weapons than many other things we've dealt with.
0: So explain to me what the actual process of the geoengineering is. You've been talking specifically about solar geoengineering. And I would, why don't we keep this
1: just a solar geoengineering? Because while there is another thing related to taking carbon out of the atmosphere, it's probably less important in policy terms, and it's uh, no, not, let, let's just keep it to solar geoengineering. That's enough of a topic. So what if you actually want to do it, let's say that you wanted to be specific to uh, cut the rate of warming in half starting in 2020. What you would do is uh, uh, the rate of warming is because you're gradually accumulating CO2 in the atmosphere, and you need to start gradually accumulating sulfur, let's say, sulfuric acid particles in the upper atmosphere which reflect away some sunlight. And you do that uh, starting, let's say, in 2020, just making this up. And it's sort of frighteningly easy to do. You would start with a couple of aircraft, literally two or three, begins this process of altering the whole global climate. They'd be you know, <clears throat> modified biz jets that can get up to the middle stratosphere. They would put at the beginning, say, a, a few th- uh, uh, tens of tons of sulfur into the atmosphere each year, and then you'd ramp up gradually uh, 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 towards a couple hundred thousand tons at the end of a decade or so, and then towards, towards uh, a million tons at the end of 50 years. And, um, and if you did that, you would roughly divide in half the the rate of change of overall warming, although not solve all your problems. And there's a bunch of of, of additional problems like potential ozone loss or or the direct effects of sulfur. Um, but that's a sense of what you actually do. And that could be done from you know a couple of airfields with technologies that basically all exist
0: today. So yeah, you mentioned imperfections before. Uh, what are they? what what are the side effects? they I mean, it seems like a so, so there
1: are a whole bunch of technical side effects, like the potential for ozone loss, which is real, but at least from the modeling studies so far, looks actually not particularly serious. And in fact, you can there's some knobs you could turn in engineering sense that might make that go the other way, so that there was no ozone loss. Um, I think the, as I said again, the biggest problems are really social, um, and the biggest problems are this sort of easy contr- control that many different countries, especially, have their hand on the knob. And, and you know, think of this as a sort of game-theoretic problem. How do we get a deal? You know, let's say you want it warmer and I want it colder. How do we make a deal? Or let's be more specific. Uh, there's real evidence from people I know who have talked with folks in the Chinese Politburo that they, uh, Chinese leadership is worried about climate change reducing their monsoon strength. And you know, historically, climate Chinese leadership has been imperiled when they couldn't feed people. And so they're they're getting serious about climate change in a bunch of dimensions, which is very exciting, uh, including clean energy. Um, But let's say they decide to do one variant of this geoengineering that would cool the waters off the Chinese coast. It's theoretically possible to do that, and that in principle should make their monsoon stronger. What I'm saying is sort of correct in the core science, but might not actually be the way things work out. Let's say they did that. Let's say that makes the Indian monsoon worse, or the Indians just think it makes the Indian monsoon worse how the heck did we solve that? We have two nuclear armed powers. We have not even the beginning, I mean, let alone not having international treaty. We don't even have, which isn't necessarily a, a magic uh, bullet for international governance anyway, but we don't even have some kind of crude norm about how to settle that dispute because uh, in the end, we really only have one atmosphere. So if the Chinese push it one way, it'll it'll do something in India one way or the other. And I think figuring out how to manage that governance problem is really a, a central piece of this.
0: So would employing a system require some kind of uh, uh, fully global agreement on its implementation? Well, clearly not technically require in the sense that uh, uh, not at all.
1: And a bunch of us have been doing some thinking about how this might actually start. So I think if a kind of hypothetical rogue country with a crazy dictator just decided to do it, uh, I think they would be stopped by threat of force or force, no problem.
0: Or perhaps a a Californian businessman. Yeah, I think that's
1: actually less likely. It's theoretically possible, but I think very unlikely in practice. You really think about people's motivations and the controls and liability and so on.
0: Well, I was speaking specifically of Russ George who dumped a ton of iron in the Pacific Ocean. Well, that's, yes, but that was so wacky that it's, but but
1: yes, that's a good example of the fact that we do not have adequate or indeed in some cases any realistic controls on experimentation, or even in some cases have legal controls and implementation. Mm. Correct. So, so that, that shows you the legal gaps that we have. But I think uh, one thing that might happen is if a major state, India or China, or a coalition of a couple states, decided to uh, do this and did it in a kind of reasoned public way with lots of public consultation and ramped it out slowly, basically did it in a sane way with communication and involvement and so on. And, but finally made the decision, what might happen is a bunch of other states would publicly decry the action, saying, uh, oh, it's terrible, this unilateral action has been taken by the government of X, but privately be kind of happy that something was being done that would, in the main, reduce climate risks, uh, with the understanding that, that the actor that did it is fundamentally taking more of the liability. Not that there's strict legal liability in international sense, mm-hmm. but, but the kind of political liability
0: is it a good idea fundamentally to pursue this action? You know, you've you've said that it's not, uh, climate change is not a liberal conspiracy, nor is it the end of the world. Is this a solution that we should be pursuing? Uh, I would say if the world
1: was run by a rational single actor as it is in models of even many of my colleagues, uh, 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 Then the answer, I think, is almost certainly yes, not necessarily to do it, but certainly to do a lot of research. And if the research proves that what we now think is correct, it seems to be correct to probably do it. And the reason is, just to be clear, I've sort of spoken about risk, what the benefits are. Uh, I told you that cutting emissions won't actually stop all the real risks that carbon imposes in the near term. So there really is a prospect that over the rest of my lifetime... There will be real risks and real crop failures, for example, from the heating and the germination season that will hit real human beings living on this planet, especially the poorest billion, in ways that are meaningful, real. And so far, essentially every climate model we've run with these technologies do suggest that they could significantly reduce that risk. And so that is that they could be a benefit, a really material benefit to um, people who really need it. So I think the case for taking it seriously is is really strong, and there's a lot of idea that it's sort of unethical to talk about it. But I think people need to think about the ethics of not doing it as well. Um, but that's on the world where we have a single rational actor. In in the actual world we live in, I think there's a a, a real danger that even though this technology is potentially, if used wisely, a technology that could uh, uh, bring substantial benefits and help us manage the climate problem at uh, more effectively and at lower cost, which is surely a win. Um, uh, I think there's a potential for mismanagement. It's very large. And so my view is that that's why we need to get talking. So the way the world has mostly dealt with this is to have it be a taboo. This idea is not new. The first serious report on climate change that went to a U.S. president that had the basic climate science correct went to President Johnson when I was two years old, 1965. It's worth reading that report. And it uh, did talk about this technology in a different Use different language, didn't use the word geoengineering, but this idea is old. But for a long time, there was a taboo where essentially uh, a polite elite society in the science and policy world agreed that we shouldn't talk about this because we wouldn't want to scare the children, and because if people got the idea it was possible, they would lose the incentive to cut emissions. That's certainly a valid concern. But my view is given these governance challenges, given the reality of the technology, like it or not, we'd be better off to have a conversation to bring it more into the mainstream of the way we think about climate, because that gives us a better chance to manage it well.
0: Well, David Keith, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today.
1: Thank you very much. A pleasure.
0: You've been listening to PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.